Welcome to TNS, the new school at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with James Thornton, founder of Client Earth and host Michael Lerner. James Thornton, welcome to the new school. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure and an honor to be here. Wonderful. James, you are the uh, CEO and founder of a uh, global law firm called Client Earth. How would you describe Client Earth? Well, Client Earth is unique in, uh, in the European uh, context. It's unique outside the North American context. Uh, what I did was, uh, as a young lawyer, I worked at a place called the NRDC, or Natural Resources Defense Council in the USA, and set up the Los Angeles office. And then when I moved to the uh, UK for personal reasons, uh, my husband is English, and it was easier for us to live there because of immigration than in the US, I thought, well, it's time to um, go back to practicing environmental law. I'd been doing other things in the meantime. So I qualified as an English lawyer and, um, the, uh, uh, and then founded Client Earth. Uh, and what Client Earth is, is uh, it's a nonprofit law firm for the environment, um, which is based in the EU, and we now have offices in London and Brussels and Berlin and Warsaw, and work in five African countries and in China. We have an office in New York. But what it, what it does is use law to protect the environment. And it's, it's that simple, you know, and it's an idea that just hadn't taken root in Europe before. Uh, so uh, it was a wide open field and there was a great need there, um, a great unmet need and even unrecognized uh, need. Uh, and because of that, it's in the last 10 years grown to just about 150 people now. So, uh, uh, and the, the work is very broad uh, from litigation to helping write laws uh, in Europe and, uh, and also in China and training Chinese judges. And you know, so it's a wide range of, of things. And I, I, I think of it as using uh, law to protect the people on the planet at five different stages. Uh, I've come to think of it that way in this biological kind of way as uh, the five life cycles of law start with, uh, for the environment, start always with the science. And I mean, I, I love science and you know, you need to start with the science. And if you're a, a lawyer and your client is the earth, uh, a lawyer needs to interview their client. And how do you interview the earth? Well, in my view, uh, it's through science. The earth speaks to us in science and tells us what she needs. And then you try and capture the science into policy. Uh, and then you turn the policy into law in a parliament uh, or Congress, uh, and then you implement the law by working with agencies to make sure they get it right, they often don't, and then you enforce it uh, because it always requires enforcement, and enforcement means uh, litigation, and litigation is often where the good stories are, but all of those stages are, are really important. When you say it's grown to 150 people, how many lawyers among those 150? Um, I would have to count, but it's well more than half. Yeah. Well more than half, yeah. Uh, so uh, I, I would say it's more like 90 lawyers. Right. Yeah. And that's been done over 10 years. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So let's just pause for a moment and recognize the size of this achievement. Here you are, an American attorney. You set up the Los Angeles Office for Natural Resources Defense Council. You get married. Your husband is British. Uh, visas are hard in the U.S. You move to the U.K. 
and you decide to start, in effect, a law firm not unlike the Natural Resources Defense Council for Europe and beyond. Mm -hmm. And lo and behold, 10 years later, you have 150 people working, about half of whom are attorneys, not only in throughout the European Union, but also in, uh, did you say, five African countries and China. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So since we're on that topic, what are you doing in China? Well, uh, <clears throat> in China, uh, it, to me, it's uh, some of the most uh, enlivening work, you know, because uh, you know, in, in Europe, uh, rather like in the U.S. at the moment, but not nearly as much, uh, you, have to, you have to fight to get things done. You can get quite a bit more done in Europe. Uh, the situation for environmental work isn't as difficult or negative as it is currently in the U.S., but it's still hard work. I mean, I sue governments and I, to get them to do stuff, as well as sometimes help them. Uh, in China, um, it's a, there's a very positive feeling in that the, <clears throat> the Chinese government has uh, decided it absolutely needs to take care of the environment. Um, and that's because the problems are so large, but the recognition is equally deep. The recognition is as deep as the problems. And the way this started was uh, in 2014, I was invited in to go give a seminar to members of the Supreme Court uh, and senior members of Parliament and the Environment Agency because <clears throat> the Supreme Court was writing rules for how citizens, so NGOs, environmental NGOs, could bring cases against companies uh, in China. And this was entirely new, you know, completely new, as you can imagine, in China. And they contacted me because they said, uh, we've, there's only one person that we know of that has done this successfully in both Europe and the United States. So you must know what you're doing. What should the rules look like? And I said, what, a, what, an amazing, what an amazing opportunity. So I said, you know, you need to do these six things. But before we get into those six things, um, you know, I'd like to acknowledge what a big thing you're doing here by letting citizens sue companies, including state-owned companies. This is revolutionary. And the senior Supreme Court judge said, hmm, Revolutionary is a big word for us. <laughs> but it is true that we're doing something that's quite different. <laughs> so that started this process. Uh, and then uh, I helped them write these rules. Uh, I then went back three months later and had a meeting in the Supreme Court uh, where it was three judges on the other side and me and the, the head of the EU program for the environment in China on our side. And the senior Supreme Court judge said, Mr. Thornton, um, I just want to let you know that we really value all of the work uh, at the seminar and subsequent, as you sent us your comments. We, uh, we liked them so much, we wrote them directly into the Chinese law. Remarkable. So you know, I put my hand on my heart and said, Your Honor, it's safe to say that not every meeting begins like this for me. <laughs> and they said, what would you like to do next? Uh, and I said, well, uh, there are four things, but you know the first of them is training judges because uh, you have newly created environmental courts um, and your environmental laws are getting better and now you need to train all these judges. And, and the same senior judge said, well, is training judges something you'd be willing to do? And of course, I'd never trained a judge, but one has to be entrepreneurial. And I said, yes, <laughs> and where shall I start? And he said, with us. And I said, you mean the Chinese Supreme Court? And he said, yes. So I said, what do you want to learn about? And the answer was, we want to learn about climate change litigation because you're an expert in climate change litigation. We want to know what's going on around the world uh, for the purpose of trying to get climate change litigation going in China. 
we want cases and we want to decide good climate change cases. It's remarkable, you know. So, so the first seminar was for members of the Supreme Court and I brought in experts from five different countries with me around the world and uh, we had this great day at the end of which the senior judge said, well, you know, this, is a, uh, this will go down in our, uh, our history book. Uh, and I said, well, why? You know? And he said, well, this is the first time that we've ever invited uh, a, a foreign expert to give a seminar in the Supreme Court building as a, a mark of our respect for your work. And I, I was amazed by this. And then that's gone on now. So um, uh, I, at the suggestion of the Supreme Court judges, uh, hired the man who was running the EU-China environmental program to be the head of our office, who's a very good Dutch diplomat and environmental expert and very good relations with the court and with the ministry and so on. So he's now running our office. And the relationship uh, went deep quickly. So in China, uh, all of the foreign NGOs, of which there are about 30,000, were required to register uh, last year. And it's been a big impediment to doing work for many because you have to find a ministry to sponsor you and it's kind of a big deal. But I was very pleased that we were actually the third uh, uh, NGO to get registered. And that was apparently because the Supreme Court decided they wanted that to happen so we could work together. And we now have a, a, a memorandum of understanding with the Supreme Court judges uh, to train judges. Um, and then the, the federal prosecutors came to us and said, the judges love what they're getting. Um, could you train us too, you know, to prosecute environmental cases and also to sue the government? Because now we can sue the government over the environment and we've never been able to do that before. And you're pretty good at suing the government. So could you train us? So we said yes. So this is the third year of training and I came back in July from, we had a training of 300 environment court judges and 100 prosecutors. And this time we brought in six Supreme Court judges from around the world to join me as the professors on the panel. Uh, and it was an amazing experience. I mean, they included Laurent Fabius, who was the, had been the prime minister of France and was the father of the Paris Agreement, who is now the head of the Constitutional Court. And, you know, but we had judges from Finland and uh, Brazil and South Africa and Pakistan uh, and the Hawaii Supreme Court, as well as France. And uh, amazing experience uh, where we were sharing uh, how different systems decide issues and reach judgments and analyze law and analyze cases. And that's going very well. They want more and more of it because uh, they see the need to train. And so we had 300 judges in the room and then uh, 3,000 judges uh, who, were, who were then watched the video. Um, and then apparently all 30,000 Chinese judges have it as an option for, uh, in their annual trainings. So we're reaching uh, pretty deep. And then um, others have come to us. So the, uh, the Chinese version of the SEC, the you know, Securities and Exchange Commission, uh, approached us and said, well, um, their think tank is writing um, new environmental disclosure regulations for China uh, for all Chinese listed companies. Um, so this is an entirely brand new thing where they'll disclose uh, the idea is pollution, uh, including CO2, but toxics and so on. So uh, we said yes, and we're going to now help them write those regulations. And then in July, I met with the, uh, the Silk Road Fund. And the Silk Road Fund is the biggest um, equity investor on the part of the Chinese government in all of the Belt and Road projects. So, uh, and the Belt and Road um, is, uh, the, is a, a collection of activities in which the Chinese are building infrastructure, uh, ports, railroads, um, and uh, 
uh, importantly, uh, uh, internet service uh, that will link something like two-thirds of the world's population with China. And uh, so, and the Silk Road Fund, key investor. So my argument to them was that, um, you know, if this is done in the right way, um, it's the way the Chinese can take their concept, which is an exciting concept of ecological civilization that they're working very hard on, and export it um, if they do all this investment in a green way. And if they do it in the wrong way, it will push the world much closer to problems of global warming and uh, endless other problems, biodiversity loss and so on. So we're now going to informally advise the Silk Road Fund on how they can um, come up with a process by which they can make sure the investment is green. Uh, so that's uh, some of the activities we're doing in China. And the tone of them is, uh, is marvelous because they, uh, they really understand they need to make uh, deep changes quickly. And they always look, and we're hardly the only advisors you know, in China at the moment, but uh, they always look for expertise that can help them. Uh, and the openness of the attitude you know, is, is very welcome. If that were the only thing that Client Earth had mm. done in mm. 10 years, mm. it would be remarkable. But mm. as you look back over the 10 years of work, if you were to pick out what you regard as the outstanding achievements of Client Earth, uh, what would some of the top items on that list look like? Well, it's a, it's a good question. I mean, some of them would be um, the, uh, that we, we have established now that in the, the entire European legal set of legal systems, citizens can enforce the law. That nobody had done that before. Uh, and then uh, some of the, the enforcement that we've been, do, uh, been doing is of itself you know, of real value. So um, in terms of human health and climate change, uh, we've brought a series of air pollution cases. Um, and uh, first by beating the British government, that's an interesting story, uh, in its own Supreme Court, uh, and then by going to Germany where we've brought 10 cases and we're winning, we're getting the, so we got an order from the Supreme Court of the UK, the first environmental injunction it ever gave, requiring the country to clean up uh, the air, and now we're enforcing that, and that's a long process, but it's happening. In Germany, we got courts in Stuttgart, Dusseldorf, and just the other day, Frankfurt, to say that if they, uh, if the government doesn't clean up the air to legal standards, then the court it will itself impose bans on diesel vehicles in those cities. And this is the Detroit of Germany, so remarkable. Um, and the first two of those cases went up to the Supreme Court of Germany, uh, but they behest to the car companies recently, and, and we won there. And Angela Merkel then uh, said uh, in a press conference about an hour later, don't worry, this case isn't as important as it seems. And I thought that was the best indication of its importance. <laughs> you know? And a few days after that, the mayor of Rome, who'd only gotten a polite letter from us so far, held a press conference and said, citizens of Rome, I've been thinking. I've been thinking about diesel. <laughs> and I'm going to ban diesel in Rome by 2024. So, uh, so beginning to clean up the air in Europe uh, is, is one important thing. And because it's a big public health issue, 400,000 people a year die early of air pollution in Europe. Globally, it's an even bigger issue. And uh, so I'm now interested in exporting what we've learned uh, in the European system, we've even done it in many different countries, to other countries where 
air pollution is an enormous issue. Um, we've also been stopping coal-fired power stations in, uh, in the EU. Um, we've stopped 20 of them so far. And uh, we're beginning now to attack existing coal uh, with the idea that um, uh, if you make coal more expensive, either to build or to, or if you stop it, or make it more expensive to build or to run, you begin to shift the economy towards renewables. Um, and uh, so that's another big one. Uh, and then in the area in which you have a lot of expertise, uh, toxics, uh, mm -hmm. you know, um, I think we've had some significant achievements in toxics mm -hmm. uh, in terms of uh, particularly transparency, uh, mm -hmm. requiring the European government to make information more transparent so that citizens can track things mm -hmm. uh, in making the process actually work better of uh, toxics regulation. And we're, we just had a, a, a case in uh, the European Court uh, a few weeks ago, it will be decided by the end of the year, uh, trying to get um, uh, endocrine disrupting chemicals out of recycled plastic. Mm -hmm. um, that will be an important victory if we, if we get it. I mean, other you've done a lot of work on fisheries. You've yes. done a lot of work on forests. Yeah. Um, so, what are the when you think of it sectorally? Mm. What are the sectors that mm. you work in broadly speaking? Yes. So it's uh, a <clears throat> um, uh, climate and energy. Yeah. Uh, and about half the team, uh, maybe approaching half the team, works on that. And uh, in that, you know, we we're working to stop coal. Uh, we're working to uh, improve the uh, uh, energy uh, laws uh, in, in Europe and uh, energy markets, um, stopping state aid to, uh, to uh, all fossil fuel projects. Mm -hmm. um, and then we have a big uh, company and finance project uh, trying to use corporate corporation laws, uh, company and finance laws, uh, to activate fiduciary duties for people managing other people's money to mm -hmm. actually take care of climate change risk and manage for climate change risk, which will again move the money in the right direction. Mm -hmm. So that's uh, climate energy. And then um, a biodiversity project, as you mentioned, fisheries. Fisheries has been a big emphasis of, uh, on the biodiversity work. And um, we helped re rewrite the common fisheries policy, uh, mm -hmm. which controls all fishing in the EU, mm -hmm. uh, which had among the most depleted fish stocks in the world and now we're trying to make that work. Mm -hmm. you know, as always, when you help write a law, then you mm -hmm. have to try and make it work. Um, and uh, in forests, uh, the work has been, a lot of that work has been in Africa, in five mm -hmm. African countries, um, working with forest, with the laws and forest-dependent communities to mm -hmm. try and protect the forest and protect the rights of the forest-dependent communities. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, and in, in human health, uh, mm -hmm. it, that is the area of the toxics work mm -hmm. and the air pollution work. Um, and then um, uh, access to justice, which is a separate uh, project, really, um, uh, in which we um, try and make sure that citizens have access to court, uh, in which there is transparency. Um, so those are, the, those are the main areas. Those are the main areas. Yeah. So when you began, um, uh, public interest law firms did not have the right to sue governments or the EU. Is that correct? Member governments or the EU? Well, it varied. So um, in, uh, you, you weren't, you didn't get, have standing, what they call standing to sue. So you didn't have the right to sue the EU right. uh, over environmental cases uh, at all. No, no citizens did. 
In the member states, it, it varies. Uh, but uh, you always had, uh, in all countries, you in theory had the right to sue. Right. And some there were high barriers. Like, like in, in Germany, there was also a very high barrier to simply getting into court. Right. Uh, in the UK, the rules on costs made it prohibitive. Right. Um, but but uh, uh, there was some access. And right. we've been improving that. But the, you couldn't sue the EU. Before. That's right. And that is something that you pioneered, is that correct? Well, yes, and we're still working at it. Yeah. So, um, yeah. but, but yes, that's right. So we brought a case against the EU in, in an international tribunal uh, mm -hmm. uh, uh, that uh, monitors compliance by governments with, the, with a treaty on mm -hmm. access to justice. And uh, actually our very first cases uh, were three cases. This was in year one against the EU, Germany, and the UK mm -hmm. on access to justice. Uh, because uh, I thought we needed to actually substantively change the legal systems mm -hmm. if we were going to work uh, and if the other NGOs were going to be able to be successful. And we won that case against the EU. We won part of it uh, in that first year. The second part uh, took eight more years, so only recent. And now we're bringing cases to give the court, the EU court, the opportunity to mm -hmm. open up. So having done this for 10 years, mm. If you were to say what three things you've learned from the experience that mm. perhaps you didn't mm -hmm. expect or know at the start, mm -hmm. but what, what, what are the big lessons from what you've done? Hmm. That's a great question I've, that no one's ever asked. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so let me think. Um, the uh, big lessons. Uh, one, uh, in a way that I hadn't appreciated before, uh, that just one guy can make a difference. Mm -hmm. um, because when I got there, I didn't know anybody in the country, you know, and I wasn't a lawyer in any European country. And I didn't know any funders. You know, I, it was really starting from scratch. And I, uh, and I had to learn the legal systems. I had to become a lawyer. I had to raise money. But you know, all of this is working now. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's, uh, it's just an example of one guy can yeah. do something. Yeah. Um, the other is that uh, Europe, for all its sophistication, um, actually la lagged behind the uh, U.S. in giving citizens rights to uh, to courts uh, to uh, fight for their rights. It was a, it's a harder game to play there than it was in the United States. Um, and I guess the the third thing is uh, it has been a, an enormous eye opener uh, working in China. You know, and in the West, China has a really bad reputation. Um, and I understand that partly comes from all the human rights problems and they're very real. But on the environmental side, you know, they really have become the ones who are pushing more than anybody right. else. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And, and that's very exciting. Uh, yeah. And that's a real revelation. And I, when I go around you know, talking about the book and telling people that China story or mm -hmm. various different aspects of it, um, they're always amazed. I say, well, we didn't know this, and isn't it good that somebody's doing that? So mm -hmm. those, those are the three that come to mind. Well, that's wonderful. Yeah. So as you know, um, I told you, we, well, let, let sort of confession time for me. You and I have been friends for, what, 20 years at least? More, yeah. Or 25. Yeah. At least 25, yeah. Yeah, 25 yeah. years. Yeah. And, um, um, and you've, you've had a very interesting history um, that goes beyond the resume that we've talked about, about being an attorney, opening the Los Angeles office of uh, the Natural Resources Defense Council, 
going to uh, the UK, starting uh, Client Earth. Um, that would have been enough for anybody. But actually, as you know, I'm interested in, in what I call spiritual biography mm. and how people become who they are. Mm. The, the word spiritual, we can put in quotes. And you don't have to call it spiritual. How do we make meaning in our lives? How do we... Um, and um, so um, I guess where I'd really like to start is at the beginning. Um, where were you born and raised? Uh, in New York, New York City. Uh -huh. yeah. What kind of family? Well, uh, my dad was a law professor, uh, and my mother uh, was invested her whole life in bringing up her kids. Uh -huh. uh, so it was a, and it was a wonderful, warm family. And, I, uh, and she was a very devout Catholic. Uh -huh. uh, and that was very important to me as a kid. So spiritual mm -hmm. life, very important from the get-go. Uh, and I used to attend Mass with her as a little boy um, and became an altar boy uh, and remember deep spiritual connection as a boy. And I actually thought Thomas, well, Thomas Merton became a hero of mine, the, the, the uh, American monk and writer. And I actually thought that I was going to become a, uh, uh, that I had a vocation to become a, a Christian monk. Um, yeah. But by the time I got to be a teenager, uh, I realized I was gay, uh, and it was perfectly clear, and it, was, it wasn't a choice, it was just perfectly clear, you know, and that the Catholic Church at that point had, in its theology, a place in hell reserved for me. Mm -hmm. um, so I went through a, a real spiritual crisis, saying, well, the church I believe in says the God that they uh, front for mm -hmm. uh, uh, has a place in hell for me. At the same time, I know that I'm made this way. So I, I have a choice. Um, either I can uh, deny myself and hypocritically mm -hmm. join them, or I can reject them completely. Mm -hmm. So I rejected them completely. Mm -hmm. But that, um, that left a big hole in my life. I went into a, a kind of spiritual depression or depression uh, for a long time. You know, where is meaning going to come? And then, so I, I studied philosophy, uh, and um, I thought, well, that's the way I'll find meaning in life. So I studied Western philosophy, and while I loved it, um, and I, I did this at university, and um, by the time I'd, I'd been doing a lot of graduate work as an undergraduate, and uh, by the time I uh, uh, became very well versed in 20th century uh, epistemology, I decided that wasn't where the meaning was going to be found. And then, then I thought, well, a human relationship, that'll, that will do it. So I, I, by that time, found a long-term relationship, which then broke up, and that wasn't it. Uh, and I thought by becoming an environmental lawyer, uh, since I love nature and the world, um, that would be it. But, um, but after years of that at NRDC in New York as a young guy, I found myself one morning, um, about 3 o'clock in the morning, looking into the mirror in the bathroom, uh, reciting essentially my name, rank, and serial number over and over, you know, and I, I found myself saying, "I'm James Thornton. Uh, I'm an environmental lawyer, and I'm 33. I'm James Thornton, an environmental lawyer, and I'm 33 years old." And uh, I watched myself doing that, and I thought, "This is really fascinating. You know, this is a psychic break of some type. You know, uh, so what do I, what do I do?" And the only thing I could think of doing was taking up Zen, uh, because there was a tradition of enlightenment. Uh, and they claimed it was uh, a replicable experience based on a well-known practice and that it was verifiable. 
And I thought, well, that's, <clears throat> that's the thing that's left to me to make sense out of life. And then through Peter Matheson's books, I discovered uh, a Zen teacher in Los Angeles, Maizumi Roshi, um, and went and studied with him and took to Zen very quickly and, and deeply. And, uh, and Was that, that when you started the L.A. office of NRDC? I was actually living in the L.A. Zen Center at the time, yeah. The whole time I was, I was starting it and running the L.A. office of NRDC, I lived at the L.A. Zen Center. Yeah. Right, I got it. Yeah. Uh, in other words, when you discovered the, the Zen teacher in L.A., you proposed to NRDC that you go start their LA office. Well, that's right. Well, there wasn't an LA office, so uh, oh. so I moved from New York. They had a San Francisco office. Okay. So when I when I read about this teacher, I decided uh, that's it. That's my last chance right, to, right, right. you know, that is live or die. Right. So I, I went into the guy running it, and I said, "Look, I'm I'm leaving my job in New York. I'm moving to the San Francisco office," and he said, "Gulp, okay," uh, and then I. All my, I had five weeks of holiday a year. So from San Francisco, I went down and did these five uh, week-long sessions a yeah. year. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and after a year or two, uh, 3.30 one morning, you know, that, that, that seems to be an important time of the day, um, uh, my Zumi Roshi in one of our dialogues uh, said, um, uh, maybe we could find some work to do down here. There are a lot of environmental problems. <laughs> I thought, oh boy, old man, you know, you you don't know, there is no office. You don't know how hard it is to set one up, mm -hmm. but you're my teacher, so I'll take this very seriously. And that's, it was at his re, a suggestion that I started up that office, you know, uh, which turned out to be, it was easier to bring together than I thought. And that's where I learned everything I needed in order to ultimately start, start Client Earth. Earth. Yeah. Right. yeah, yeah. You're listening to a TNS conversation with James Thornton and Michael Lerner. So, and that Zen is what kept me going through all of the... Excuse me? The Zen is what kept me going. Yeah. You know. So, uh, you're still a Zen practitioner. Mm. Yeah. So, how long have you been practicing Zen? Mm. Uh, about 30... It's over 30 years now. About 33 mm. years. Yeah. And what is your practice? Well, so, um, the... The, in a way, um, my whole life is my practice. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, I've actually got ordained some years ago mm -hmm. um, because that was a, a deep thing for me. And I dedicated my, uh, my priesthood to the earth. So I see my work as a client earth as mm -hmm. my Zen ministry, essentially, uh, which helps greatly with all, <laughs> with all of its difficulties and frustrations. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and um, so that's a very big part of my practice. And uh, Maizumi, in one of his uh, the teachings I remember most vividly, uh, said, uh, what you do on the cushion is only one thing. Uh, mm -hmm. What you do between meditation is the most important part. Mm -hmm. So that's, I try and bring that uh, in. And it comes in in a million ways. Uh, so I'm always trying to be, bring an awareness into what I do and into my meetings with people. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, into my frustrations, I try and open that space. In terms of the frustrations, what I've been finding uh, uh, as I've been very busy and uh, dealing with frustrations and people that uh, come up opposing difficulties, um, I find myself uh, in, uh, in the middle of the night doing loving kindness practice quite a bit. Mm -hmm. You know, I find that it's been a very useful practice uh, and um, it has helped soften my own approach in meetings that could have been 
really hard, uh, which then have always worked, you know, because you approach it in a certain way. In terms of the formal practice, um, I guess I would have to say that it's um, it's rather like shikantaza. So it's uh, it's just sitting uh, and feeling the energy descend and fill you, um, and then just just being there. Mm-hmm. So. You started out as a Catholic choir boy. You rejected Catholicism because they had a special place in hell for gay people. Um, you uh, studied 20th century philosophy and epistemology and didn't find it there. You had a relationship and didn't find it there. Um, so you went to Zen, and you've been at Zen for... 30 years, did you? Well, more than 30, yeah. Over 30 years. Yeah. So you found your spiritual home Mm. in Zen. So what is your view? How do you describe uh, the um, global uh, dispensation of different religious truths? Mm. In other words, uh, I'll say how I describe it, and then, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I used to believe, and I was very comfortable believing that what Huxley and Leibniz called the perennial philosophy or the perennial wisdom was at the heart of all the great religious and spiritual traditions. Mm-hmm. And then Mary Evelyn Tucker, who is the great historian of religions, kindly disabused me of that view, and she said, no, actually, Confucian and uh, Taoists don't belong to the perennial philosophy. Um, And that was really actually quite shattering for me because I was quite invested in the view that there was one basic set of truths at the heart of all great religious and spiritual traditions. Mm -hmm. But then I thought, first of all, well, the perennial philosophy is at the heart of a bunch of them, even if not all of them. And moreover, there was a way in which I thought that even if Mary Evelyn and there was another uh, uh, professor of uh, sociology of religion who I did a wonderful New School conversation with, as I did with Mary Evelyn Tucker, uh, who also just snorted in disdain at at the perennial philosophy. But I kind of got over it, and I thought, okay, as, as a historian, Mary Evelyn is undoubtedly technically correct. As a sociologist, this other wonderful gentleman is undoubtedly technically correct. But I still like to believe that there is one light that shines down and reflects in the prisms of the different religious and spiritual traditions that are designed to meet the needs of the different cultures in which they take place. And that uh, there actually is a core unified truth. Now, that's, that's kind of, as you know, a non-dualist perspective. Mm. Um, mm. And I readily admit that um, it's just another story. Mm. But it's a story which I like enough to live by. So I'm curious, as a Zen practitioner, which is a non-theistic tradition, mm. and some people have trouble with 
the fullness of emptiness as opposed to theistic, but I don't have a problem with that at all. I mm, think that mm. the sophisticated people, as you know, Merton is a good example, Brother David Steindl-Rast, uh, Richard Rohr. Um, I'm fond of the Catholics who have turned Catholicism inside out uh, into a universalist uh, 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 informal theologies, which, after all, that's where it started, mm -hmm. in some sense. Mm -hmm. So I, I, with that preface, I'm curious about what your informal theology mm. is. Mm. Well, I, that, thank you for that. Um, uh, again, not, not something I've ever thought about in this, mm -hmm. in this way. Uh -huh. So it, it's, it's a great question. And um, um, you know, I guess the way I approach it is that, um, you know, it, it is from, well, not, not surprisingly, it's from a Buddhist perspective, really. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, my sense is, is very much that, uh, that every person uh, want, wants to be happy, mm -hmm. you know, and has the right to be happy. Um, and then what architecture of belief and practice do you erect around that to try and support that move towards happiness? What I like about the, my own practice or the practice uh, that emerges uh, from, from Buddhism um, is that it, is, uh, it doesn't put much of a container. Uh, it doesn't have ideologies and it doesn't have restrictions. So I look at all of the religions as, rather as you were saying, as cultural expressions. Mm -hmm. um, and I look at them as myths that are either more or less helpful mm -hmm. uh, to a given person, a given, uh, a given culture, and, and to their interactions. Mm -hmm. uh, that often gets in the way of cultural interactions. So they're more or less uh, useful. But I think they're all fulfilling, trying to fulfill the, mm -hmm. the same function. And uh, they... Um, and there are certainly people within each of them, as you were just saying about um, some of our Catholic friends, who are, who are transboundary, who mm -hmm. have a kind of transboundary religion. What I try to practice is a no-boundary religion mm -hmm. uh, in, in which uh, uh, I would say that quite similar to you that mm -hmm. there is a light shining that you need to open up to. And um, that I really don't put much of a theology around it. I mean, and again, that's, that's quite Zen. As, as soon as you try to capture it in words, um, it's gone, you know, it's dead. Um, and that living experience is what I find really nurturing. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. So thank you for that spiritual biography. And so another one of the things that you did for a while that is very interesting to me is that you um, worked in psychedelic policy issues. Mm. Tell us mm. what that was and how that came to be. Well, yeah, an interesting time for me. So um, I, had, uh, I had done all of the work in Los Angeles uh, at the NRDC in environmental law. And then a time came when I decided I, I needed to take a year and do a retreat. So I had a year's long retreat, which was uh, really beneficial for me. Uh, I, it fulfilled a lifelong dream of just being able to full-time go deep, 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 and, and that's what the year was. And it was, that's when I, I really felt that I had gotten to the point of knowing that I had found meaning uh, and that it would carry me through into whatever I did. And um, the, during that 
uh, during that retreat year. Um, I, I worked with a, a Hindu teacher, uh, with my Zen teacher, and I had a, an hour-long meeting with the Dalai Lama, which was very important to me. And what all of them essentially were saying is, um, uh, why don't you help uh, social activists um, uh, by teaching them how to meditate? Mm -hmm. So I set up a project doing that uh, for seven years. Uh, that was called Positive Futures. And that helped start a, a movement which is now quite vital in the United States. Uh, that's several million dollars a year in funding goes to a number of organizations now that help social activists to learn how to practice uh, and de-stress and find a positive vision so that they can look for uh, answers to social problems with a positive mind instead of the angry mind. That was the, my original impulse, and that's now going on. So by the time uh, I had done that and uh, that work was really being picked up by a number of other organizations, I felt like I didn't need to be doing it any longer, and I was looking for the next um, opportunity to serve, really. And um, I was approached, I was living in Santa Fe at that point, by a group of um, neuroscientists. And they said, um, we, uh, we have this little institute called the Hefter, Hefter Research Institute, um, but it's, it's kind of nascent and um, it's not well-funded and we have no legal access to, uh, to psychedelics or hallucinogens, as they like to sometimes call them. And they said, uh, there are a number of reasons why we want to have that access. Um, I said, number one, uh, this was uh, now about uh, 25 years ago, I guess. Um, uh, we now have this new generation of brain imaging technology um, that allows us to study the brain in real time. And we want to see uh, the big new neocortex, you know, the gray matter brain, um, where all of the, a lot of the human functions happen. Um, but the only way to study the serotonin system in the brain is to give uh, chemicals that light it up. Uh, for our imaging equipment. And interestingly, uh, every chemical that lights up the serotonin system is a hallucinogen. Uh, and the reason for that is that serotonin itself is a hallucinogen. Uh, so we're always tripping, uh, in other words. I thought, well, that's really interesting. And they said, uh, you know, you're a lawyer who seems to be able to get things done. You know, could you get us legal access? Because this we want to publish in major journals. We want to do this at big universities. We need to have legal access to these. So that's first for the brain imaging, but also then there was suggestive work uh, from the 60s, only suggestive because science has changed so much uh, and it's much more rigorous now, that working with uh, patients with cancer uh, and uh, post-traumatic stress <clears throat> syndrome, <clears throat> some of these molecules would be very, very helpful uh, as therapy. Uh, but again, we need we need access. So I said, sure, what a good project. And uh, one reason I wanted to do that is, uh, so for me, the it won't surprise you by this point uh, to, for, for me to say that the way I look at environmental problems is environmental problems are, are mental problems. And it's the way we think and therefore act that cause all environmental problems. So environmental problems are mental problems. And I began to think, uh, in addition to using legal uh, approaches, what else could I do? So uh, meditation to help social activists have a positive mindset from which to solve problems was my next approach after setting up the NRDC. But then I thought, what's the next approach? And I thought, well, um, I had experience with shamanism. And uh, in uh, I went to South America and uh, tried ayahuasca with shamans, uh, for example. 
And my experience was that it tuned me greatly into the natural world. Uh, and it made, I mean, I always have a connection with the natural world, but it was, it was very deep and special uh, presence in the natural world. Um, and I thought, well, if people can simply have this type of experience and have it legally, um, it might also help change the mindset uh, and get us beyond the, the madness that is causing the environmental problems. But I noticed as I was working with shamans, I mean, my husband almost died as a result of some shamanic activity. Um, and I then looked into the philosophy of shamanism and it became clear that uh, while it's the most ancient form of, of religious practice, um, it has in it things, uh, so the, the dynamic is that the shaman is uh, primarily interested in power uh, and in his or her own power and not in taking care of you. Uh, he or she will take care of you uh, if they like you or, uh, or if you pay them enough, whatever the circumstances are that uh, adduce to their own happiness or power or satisfaction. But they're not out to take care of you. They might harm you just as easily as help you if it suits their interests. And I thought, well, I don't want to put, uh, uh, you know, uh, psychedelics are such powerful medicine that uh, I, 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 what would interest me uh, is putting them in the hands of, of shamans who were, who were different. And then I went click. Um, the, uh, uh, the doctors, the psychiatrists and medical researchers I had um, been approached by had all taken the Hippocratic Oath. Um, and then I connected that with the Buddhist practice. And I, uh, what clicked for me there was the Bodhisattva vow in Buddhism is um, I will save all sentient beings. So if you're serious, you take that vow. I will save all sentient beings. That comes uh, historically uh, at about 500 BC. The Hippocratic Oath, which is to only heal, never harm, is essentially identical with the Bodhisattva vow. It's the same vow expressed in somewhat different terms. And it originates uh, slightly west uh, of the Bodhisattva vow in Greece around the same time, 500 BC. And I thought uh, that is a great turn of the human mind uh, beyond shamanism to a more sophisticated interpersonal understanding. That was the axial age, wasn't that, it? That was the axial age, yeah. exactly. Yeah, precisely so. Right, and, yeah. and so that axial age really is recognized as a great turning of the human mind. Yes, yes. But I hadn't heard anybody um, describe the shift from the shamanic focus on power to uh, the axial focus on, um, on individual well-being and, and, uh, and being harmless and... Uh, and the, the Hippocratic Oath. That's, that's a very nice uh, formulation. Well, it, and and yeah. before you go on, just mm. for a second, the other yeah. thing that you said, I mean, one of the very interesting things about your mind, James, is you are able to, you know, we all create stories about our lives. Your story is unusually coherent in the story mm. you tell yourself about these stages. Um, and so, um, you know, the movement from Zen to the year of retreat with the Hindu teacher and the Dalai Lama and uh, deciding that uh, they told you to work with uh, activists and so you created the 
Positive Futures Project to teach activists to meditate, and you did that for seven years. And then this uh, taking on the work with the Hefter Institute uh, to help them get access to psychedelics. Um, and you said then, and this is, it's almost a bumper sticker, I, I'd never heard anybody say this, that environmental problems are mental problems. Mm. And what's beautiful about that, obviously, is the play on environmental, you know, environmental problems are mental problems. And then you thought, well, you know, how have I, how do I do that? You had worked with meditation, you'd worked with uh, uh, shamans in Latin America, but as you say, I'm just sort of recapitulating because I think it's worth the emphasis. The shamans, in your view, were interested in power. They could either help or harm you. You wanted to put these um, substances in the hands of people who were devoted to helping you. And the Hippocratic Oath and the Bodhisattva Vow both emerged in this axial period. So I just wanted to sort of mm -hmm. bring us back up to there. Mm -hmm. So please continue from mm. there. Yeah. Well, yes. So I saw that the um, uh, there was a possibility if the uh, if these substances became legally available to people who had dedicated themselves to helping other people, um, that this was a potential uh, point of consciousness shift that we needed to deal with these <laughs> mental environmental problems, and. Uh, the, then I, I came up with a uh, with a strategy for how to uh, gain legal access, and um, that was that um, we needed to do uh, uh, research uh, on safety first uh, because of the FDA uh, process. And there are only a few countries in the world, other than the U.S., that the FDA will respect the medical research of. One of them was Switzerland, uh, and the institute had a. a uh, a doctor in Switzerland that was connected with it. So I said, let's go, let's raise money, let's go to Switzerland and let's do the safety testing uh, in Switzerland because those results will be recognized by the FDA. And let's not uh, use uh, LSD uh, because uh, it's uh, the political it's controversy. Politically. Yeah, yeah. I've, yeah. I, um, I found myself cleaning, trying to clean up a lot of Timothy Leary's karma. It's, um, mm -hmm. it's an odd position we've been in. But I said, let's start with psilocybin, uh, because there is no, it's not radioactive, you know, it's a natural substance, uh, no one particularly knows about it, it has no controversy. So they gained um, uh, all of the, uh, did all of the studies that were necessary, and then we gained access uh, to the medical use of psilocybin uh, in the U.S., as, as well as in Switzerland. And you did that? Um, mm. I so didn't know with that. The, with the Hefter Institute, yeah. Mm -hmm. You're listening to a TNS conversation with James Thornton and Michael Lerner. Yeah, and then um, uh, yes, that was that was our work and my my thought. Twenty five years ago, something like that. Yeah, and then we funded research at a number of a number of universities, so UCLA and uh, University of Arizona, uh, Purdue, uh, Johns Hopkins, Harvard. Um, Were you aware of Robert Jesse at that point? Yes, yes, I, I met him at that point. No. Yeah, long as ago. I mentioned to you on our walk. Um, uh, I've done two New School conversations with Michael Pollan mm -hmm. about his book, mm -hmm. How to Change Your Mind. Mm -hmm. And the first of them he did with me right after he published his first New Yorker article, uh, which was actually a very interesting conversation before he wrote the book, but mm -hmm. after he wrote the New Yorker article. And then 
after he wrote the book, which to his surprise became a national bestseller mm-hmm. and, uh, and really has had a powerful impact. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and as you know, part of my deep interest in that, given 32 years of work in the Commonwealth Cancer Health Program with people with cancer, you know, a lot, I'm, I'm in my 202nd this week as we speak. And so there's a lot of anxiety, depression, fear of death. And we know that for some people, a single MDMA um, mm-hmm. uh, experience mm-hmm. can profoundly change the experience mm-hmm. of living with cancer. Um, and obviously, psilocybin and ayahuasca and other substances are uh, more complicated stories, but they, mm-hmm. they can do the same things. So, but what I'd like to explore briefly with you there is that um, Robert Jesse has become a friend, a very interesting man who stayed behind the research issues on uh, psychedelics. Um, uh, you know, very quiet, humble, extraordinary man. Um, and now he is looking at, and we're all looking at the fact that it's a little like the moment at which Bill Moyers did the Healing in the Mind series, mm-hmm. which mainstreamed mind-body health. Yes. And now we're looking with Michael Pollan's book at mm-hmm. the mainstreaming of psychedelics. Yes. Know, which, as you know, was promising, promising research in the early 60s and 70s. Then the government got paranoid about these substances, mm-hmm. banned them, made them Schedule One. is that what they're called? Mm-hmm. Yes. Schedule One drugs, mm-hmm. very illegal, you could go to prison. But the underground work on them continued mm-hmm. in healing terms, and they became party drugs like MDMA or self-exploration drugs like psilocybin and ayahuasca. So mm-hmm. the culture kept moving them, mm-hmm. right, mm-hmm. as part of the broader continuation of the mm-hmm. counterculture out of the 60s. And now there's this convergence mm-hmm. of uh, the counterculture, the party mm-hmm. stuff, and uh, the medical research. So the really interesting question, when something like this goes mainstream, is how much harm is going to happen, mm-hmm. you know? Because on the one hand, as you pointed out, it can bring you into very deep relationship with nature, mm-hmm. with love. Mm-hmm. In the right hands, done in the right way, yes. with people who are trained or experienced, this can be extraordinary. Mm-hmm. But as you know, set and setting are profoundly important mm-hmm. in yes. what happens. Yes. It's not just the drug. It's, mm-hmm. it's the drug that unleashes the possibility of set mm-hmm. and setting. Mm-hmm. Well, we're not going to be able to control that. I mean, obviously, the widespread legalization of marijuana, mm-hmm. you know, both for medical and recreational mm-hmm. uses, and now this emerging interest, mm-hmm. we have no idea of what the cultural impact will be. Mm-hmm. So what is your sense of what we have unleashed here? Mm. Well, I, I think we can't know. But but uh, we're at the moment that I was... Right. Uh, uh, I was actually looking for all those years back right. uh, when I, um, because what I thought was that um, it needed uh, uh, it needed the research uh, and it, uh, these substances needed to be put in the hands of uh, of people who took the Hippocratic oath. Um, and I was I was talking to all of these guys back then, um, saying that I foresee the day in a couple of decades 
when you'll be able to uh, go to a doctor's office uh, and have a session with a therapist uh, with uh, uh, psilocybin or indeed MDMA, which the Institute worked with as, as well. Um, and I saw that as a way of bringing it in, into the mainstream. So uh, to have the, the research be done uh, and then to make it available through, um, through the medical uh, profession or the healing uh, professions was the, the vision that I was sharing with these guys. And that's what is now happening all these years later. Um, where, where it goes, I think, is, is hard to know. Um, uh, and you're right to raise the issues. Um, what happened last time was very irresponsible. What I was hoping, uh, you know, in the 60s with you know, people take... It, it, the reason that there was a, a backlash is that there was a lot of irresponsibility, you know, um, I think. And uh, what I've been hoping is that uh, because now you have these sort of trained people uh, who are in some situations going to be giving it, that there's a, a more... Um, if you want a more serious uh, approach, uh, which may reduce harm, hopefully, uh, and leads and leads to healing. I mean, the uh, uh, you're you're the uh, cancer expert, um, but I led the institute into um, working. They wanted to do it, but uh, with um, end stage cancer patients uh, with uh, uh, psilocybin and then MDMA. Um, part of the reason was that it was uh, they were the patients that one could actually. Uh, get access to yeah. uh, because they were in stage. And they were able to show that uh, in the right circumstances, uh, even one dose of psilocybin, let alone MDMA, uh, greatly reduced fear uh, of death and and subsequently greatly reduced uh, physical pain. It's really interesting. Um, so uh, I, I don't have a, a full answer uh, to this by any means. We don't know what's going to be happening. But my hope is that uh, by having involved uh, people who are professional healers uh, in this stage, uh, it may come out differently, and we may see a great deal of, of healing and help. I, I think that's beautiful. I, I have some concern myself with um, the paradigm in which uh, these... You know, I love the term entheogens as opposed to psychedelics. And mm -hmm. psychedelics, although Michael Pollan decided to use that, and it's for very good reasons, because it's descriptive, people know what it means, but it still carries the baggage of the 60s, the term does. Mm -hmm. And theogens is such a beautiful word because it means substances that enable you to touch the face of God, mm -hmm. you know? And that's what the true use of them should be, mm -hmm. you know? So if that's their true use, there's a part of me that has some skepticism about the exclusive medicalization mm, of them, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that somehow having an MD after your name uh, means that you have the necessary wisdom and self-awareness to be a good guide, and conversely, that there are many people mm -hmm. outside sure. of the medical paradigm who have the power to be good guides. So mm -hmm. We can't solve this, but we're just exploring the fact that work that you began 25 mm -hmm. years ago mm -hmm. and that intrigues me. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, I speak as somebody who tried psychedelics twice about 35 years ago and haven't touched them since, mm -hmm. you know. So mm -hmm. my interest in them, in a sense, is I think about it, you know, I'm 75 years old. Do I want to have that experience at this point in my life? 
but I haven't chosen to. Mm -hmm. and, and it's an interesting question which you're aware of. If you ask a pure Buddhist practitioner, they will advise against psychedelics. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, a whole lot of American Buddhist teachers, like Jack Kornfield and others, uh, you know, in, in that tradition, uh, psychedelics have actually been important. Mm -hmm. and they, uh, there are teachers who work at that interface, you know, mm -hmm. that you've had this experience with a psychedelic, now get on the cushion and meditate for 25 years so that you can stay with it. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. What is your view on that? Well, you, you know... That, mm. that it is something that is usefully sustained as, part, as a Buddhist, mm -hmm. or are you of the purest view that you shouldn't? I guess I'm of a mixed view. Mixed view. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, uh, I did this period of work with the shamans mm. and so on. Uh, it was very, and that's some time ago now. I yeah. mean, that's, gee, that's a long time ago. But it, uh, it was very useful for me. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the way it was useful is I had already had, uh, before I did that, I had years of meditation practice yeah. and very, very deep experience. Yeah. Um, and... Uh, but uh, having been trained in philosophy and being a Western skeptical mm -hmm. analytic thinker, I wondered uh, about those experiences. Uh, and I, I kept inquiring, you know, are these experiences what they're supposed to be, you know, and what my Zen master says they are, you know. Uh, have I really um, gained a deep understanding? Um, but then working with the ayahuasca in particular, uh, it took me to the same place by a completely different route, yeah. uh, and um, and I said, ah, got it. You know, this uh, this has helped me triangulate uh, my experience in a way that's enormously helpful. Mm -hmm. uh, so for me, it worked very well in that way. Um, you know, and then I go back to the the Hindu meditation practice preceded the Buddhist. The Buddhist grew out of the Hindu, mm -hmm. and the Hindu practice uh, it appears if you read the Upanishads. Uh, grew out of the use of psychedelics. Absolutely. Um, so, uh, to me, it's going back to the roots of the practice. Right, I mean, yeah. it's been in many traditions. Yeah, yeah, yeah sure. Look at it. Oh. Well, every tradition where there are uh, entheogens available. Right, exactly. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. fascinating. Mm. So, uh, one final subject that we talked about briefly as we walked for 45 minutes around the Commonweal land and looked out at the Pacific and just marveled at the remaining beauty of the world. Um, I told you about um, work that I've been doing on, um, what's the simplest way to say this? The fact that climate change is by no means the only global issue that we face and that there's a whole set of environmental, technological, social, financial, political vectors that are moving together at increasing speed in increasing deleterious ways that seem to be producing a growing number of shocks to industrial civilization and that we can't know what combination of shocks will take place at what rate, but that the view that climate change is the only issue is a radical oversimplification of what in the 
technical literature is called the global problematique. You know, the Club of Rome called it. The, in other words, the global the global challenge, the mm-hmm. global problem, mm-hmm. and that um, in fact that a vast array of these issues um, will can and will intersect in unexpected ways. The example I gave you was the fact that uh, more and more state and non-state actors have the ability to uh, uh, do cyber attacks on each other's energy grids. And so if somebody takes down the American energy grid, um, Ted Koppel wrote a book called Lights Out about this specifically. It takes years to build, bring the energy grid back up. Mm-hmm. Uh, the transformers aren't even built in the United States. You have to have them shipped from overseas. And so the growing ability, I mean, if the Russians do it, we threaten to bomb them, nuke them or whatever. But if some non-state actors do it who are sufficiently angry at us for our many, you know, uh, decisions, um, we don't have anybody to strike back at. Uh, but that's just one example. There's the intersection of oil and finance and all these different things. And so the concern in the community of people that I work with, there's a website called the Fan Initiative, which does a good job on this. But um, there's also, as you know, the Swedish uh, Resilience uh, Center. Mm-hmm. There's um, a really interesting project in the UK called the Dark Mountain Project. I don't know if you're familiar with it. Fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, there's um, the Post Carbon Institute here. Uh, there's about a half dozen uh, to a dozen. Uh, you mentioned the Center for Existential Risk in the UK, although they're working more with other things. But there's a dozen to a half dozen uh, centers that really are saying, wait a minute, it's not just pro- climate change. We can have an unraveling of civilization or civilizational collapse because of the intersection of all these things. And so, as I said to you, we have thousands of foundations Mm -hmm. funding hundreds of thousands of NGOs on every silo issue under the sun. But there's not a single foundation today and a handful of NGOs who are looking at the interaction of all of them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I raised this with you, and not surprisingly, you've been thinking about this too, and I just would love to mm. hear your reflections mm. on it. Mm. Well, thank you. Thank you for raising this. And I, uh, as I was saying when we were walking, uh, I think it's very exciting that you are thinking about this. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I have enormous respect for you as a thinker, as an original thinker, uh, and often find inspiration in, uh, in talking with you. And the ideas, uh, we had an example this morning, but... The ideas uh, you leave me with are often ones I go away and work on, you know, for a long time, and that's uh, uh, that's very welcome. Mm-hmm. And you actually, uh, in a way, got me working on this some years ago when we met in um, in London, and you were saying, uh, you know, what do you uh, what do you want to do with the rest of your life? You know, client Earth is going pretty well. Um, uh, the future is in doubt. Um, why don't you think about the future? So I had already been thinking about the future and I've been thinking about it more. And um, the example uh, that we were discussing was uh, it, it grew out of climate change for me because in a way uh, what climate change does is it potentially makes uh, all of the other problems worse or brings them closer, you know, and um, will elevate all conflicts uh, and uh, will greatly increase uh, 
uh, migration of people uh, that's only beginning to start now and is already having a baleful effect in Europe on uh, right-wing politicians taking control in, in Hungary, uh, in Poland, and um, the, in the Swedish elections, the, the right-wing party uh, has advanced. In Germany, um, the right-wing party has advanced uh, in a scary way, uh, and so on. France, France, the UK. Yes, absolutely. Everywhere. Brexit, yeah. Uh, yeah. And uh, I live with Brexit every day. Um, so <clears throat> so uh, I, w I was just talking with uh, the new chair of, of Client Earth the other day, who is, uh, among other things, a physicist, um, about uh, looking at the uh, impacts, and again, we started with climate change, the impacts of climate change on civilization. And we, we started with the work of the, uh, of the Resilience Institute in, in Sweden, um, and um, which suggests uh, in a new paper that once you get to a certain point uh, of global warming, which may not be far beyond two degrees, uh, that uh, a set of interactions uh, begin to happen, which no matter what humans then do, uh, will move uh, the, the planet uh, perhaps several degrees warmer. So uh, once you hit a certain point, uh, a, a ratchet happens and it just goes. And it may be to a point where civilization as we know it uh, is, is very difficult or, well, is impossible to maintain. And um, we were then talking about an analysis by, that uh, Jeremy Grantham did uh, some years back in which he very helpfully uh, started talking about the rolling collapse of civilization. And he was, again, thinking of the interactions between climate change and many other things, uh, agriculture, uh, migration, water systems, electric systems, and so on. Um, and what he was saying is at a certain point, um, hard exactly, again, to quantify, that all of the civilization as it exists around the equator and uh, to a large band above and below will be hard to maintain. Uh, so what you'll get is um, you know, agriculture dropping off, uh, water becoming uh, hard to get, um, electricity not being generated, people dying, people migrating. Uh, and uh, after a certain point, what he foresaw is that the uh, uh, is a civilization, if it goes that way, becomes a, um, a rather more like medieval civilization. And if you, I've always been fascinated by you know when you read say of the going back to Catholicism, the age of Thomas Aquinas, that scholars would travel between uh, a few places in Europe, and they actually moved back and forth between Frankfurt and Rome and. Uh, it's it was surprisingly cosmopolitan, although in between were only mud huts, you know, but there were, there were intellectual centers. What Grantham was saying is you might find a, a modern version of that, uh, which is that uh, as things collapsed, there would, be, there would still be high-tech centers of civilization for a period of time. So what uh, Howard Covington and I were saying the other day is uh, it would be very good to, uh, you know, taking on board this idea of the Resilience Institute that you get to a, a trigger point and then everything moves uh, to a, a point where existing civilization isn't sustainable. Uh, what will it look like? Well, at four or five degrees, it may, uh, Europe and the United States may look like Dubai today. Quite possible, who knows? Um, and if so, um, what would it take to house and feed uh, people uh, in those conditions, um, you know, uh, and how many people could you actually support? You know, you may have to uh, grow your food in factories, all your water be desalinated. Um, uh, 
10 billion people, very unlikely. Is it, is it 10 million people? You know, who knows? Uh, and the who knows is, what, is what's interesting because uh, you get predictions of, you know, uh, so many degrees of increase, but no one's done the work to say, what would that actually mean? On the ground. On the ground. What would it look like? And we started talking about how valuable it might be um, to do that work and to bring together a, a group of scientists uh, who are climate scientists, engineers, energy specialists, uh, uh, population specialists, agricultural specialists, and imagine what would the world look like? Uh, what would the four degree, you might do several, uh, four degree world look like as a kind of contingency plan? Uh, and that it would have a couple of values. Uh, one is that it, um, you could actually begin to plan for it, but uh, in, the, in the shorter term, where we only have 10 or 20 years to maybe stop this from accelerating and going on its own, um, to see what, it would, uh, what we would wind up at may inform people enough so that they're willing to take stronger steps than we are taking today about, about climate change in particular. Um, so that, that's where I was. That's where I was coming at. And um, but I, I agree that it's not the only problem, you know. And one of the ones we were talking about before is that, um, and uh, and this is one that the, uh, the Cambridge University people look at as well, is that um, there will be soon thousands of people who have the uh, bioengineering skills to produce potentially unstoppable uh, viruses. And, right. Um, and who knows who would want to do that? I mean, uh, you're not going to be able to save your own, your own people at that point. Mm -hmm. So it's a, it's a peculiar thing to do. Martin Rees, the, the British scientist and astronomer royal, actually told me that as he's thought about it, uh, he interestingly thinks that that um, anti-human virus uh, could be designed and released by a group of, uh, of uh, radical environmentalists mm -hmm. uh, who are simply very, very angry uh, mm -hmm. with what people are doing and say that people are the problem, let's get rid of the problem, uh, and are willing to suffer the consequences themselves. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so uh, you have all of these possible um, actors, mm -hmm. and I agree it all needs to be studied uh, very mm -hmm. much, very much so. Well, I'm sure this is a conversation that we will continue. Mm. Before we close, uh, I just want to step back, uh, first of all, just in gratitude uh, for your service to people and planet. You know, it's so interesting because you talked about people and planet and Commonweal started 42 years ago with a vision of healing ourselves and healing the earth. So it's the same vision uh, worked out uh, yours in this extraordinary way um, with client earth. Is there anything that I haven't asked you that you would like to close with? Anything sort of sitting with you as we complete the conversation? Well, I mean, I, I just want to express my gratitude to you. I mean, uh, the, uh, um, the, the vision with which you've approached all of your work uh, has been deeply inspiring to me for the 25 years or more that we've known Thank each you. other. Um, and I feel a, a tremendous commonality in it, yes. you know. Um, and, uh, uh, and nobody asks these questions that you're asking. Uh, so uh, nobody makes the space for this exploration that you make the space mm -hmm. for, uh, which I think is how we grow. So I'm, I'm very grateful for it. Thank you. James Thornton, founder and CEO of Client Earth, uh, the great uh, European Union uh, 
uh, law firm uh, that also works in China and Africa. Um, uh, one of the most um, dedicated servants to life that I know. Um, and um, a wonderful friend. Thank you for being with us at the New School. Thank you. You've been listening to a TNS Conversation with James Thornton and host Michael Lerner. Thank you for listening to TNS, the new school at Commonweal. The new school at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Suzanne Ciani. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, and Vimeo. Thanks for listening.